0: Psalm 32, we're going to read this psalm in its entirety, Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away They shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked." but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you now to hear you speak to us through your word. We come not because we have any right in and of ourselves, but for Jesus' sake, because of what he has done on our behalf, because you sent him to be the f- perfect son that we have failed to be. And so we come now to hear from you, praying that you would empower us by your Spirit to hear and to be transformed by your Word. We can't do this on our own. We have no ability on our own to do this. And so we pray that you would send your Spirit to accompany the hearing and the preaching of your Word so that you would be exalted. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, once again, we find ourselves this morning in the book of Psalms, and I was interested to learn this past week that the psalm we're looking at today, the psalm we just read, Psalm 32, was actually a favorite of one of the the greatest church fathers in all of history. And that church father was none other than St. Augustine. And just in case you don't know who St. Augustine was, he was a church father in Africa during the third century whose influence on theology and philosophy um, we still feel today. If you were to take a, 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 a class in um, uh, a, study, a study of the greatest works in, in Western thought and theology or philosophy, you'd almost certainly read something by St. Augustine. But what I had no idea was that St. Augustine loved Psalm 32. He, he just adored this psalm. It was his favorite out of the entire Psalter. As a matter of fact, he loved it so much that when he was on his deathbed, Think about this. He had Psalm 32 inscribed on the wall opposite to him. So as he lay in his deathbed, he could read Psalm 32. He could meditate on it. He could study it as he lay dying. That's how much peace and comfort this psalm brought him. And I think at least part of the reason why Augustine loved this psalm so much is because it speaks about a specific topic. It speaks about happiness, Happiness. Now granted, from me reading most of our English translations of this Psalm, you would never guess that it was about happiness. Because the word happy never even shows up in most of our English translations. It certainly doesn't in the ESV translation that I read to you this morning. But if you recall from our study of Psalm 1 a couple weeks ago, the word blessed can also be translated happy. That was the case in Psalm 1, and that's the case here in Psalm 32 as well. So in other words, Psalm 32 is about happiness. And happiness as a subject um, was something that St. Augustine loved to think about. As a matter of fact, he wrote a whole book on happiness called The Happy Life. And in that book, you can actually find it for free online, and in that book, one of the things he makes abundantly clear is that everyone... Everyone wants to be happy. So if you think that the pursuit of happiness is just a a modern phenomenon, then you're wrong. Because mankind has always sought happiness. They did in David's day, they did in St. Augustine's day, and we still do today. But what's interesting about Psalm 32 is what it tells us. About happiness because this psalm is abundantly clear you see it in the very first verse that the happy person is what the forgiven person in other words you can't be happy unless you're forgiven now let me ask you does that seem a little odd to you does it seem a little odd to you that if you want to be happy you must be forgiven well if that's not odd to you I can guarantee you that it's odd to our American culture. And here's how I know that. I decided to do a little investigating this last week. And so what I did is I went on Amazon.com and I looked up the three, the top 10, not three, the top 10 selling books on happiness, top 10 selling books on happiness. And do you know what I found? I found that these 10 books, though they occasionally talked about the importance of forgiving others for your own sake, they didn't have a single instance, not once, where they talked about the importance of being forgiven. Not once did they talk about how essential it is for us to be forgiven in order to be happy. So then here's the question. Why does David say that if we want to be happy, then we must be forgiven. Why is it essential that we be forgiven in order to be happy? Well, our text this morning actually answers that question for us. And it does so by showing us three truths that we must know about forgiveness in order to be happy. Three truths about forgiveness that we must know in order to be happy. We'll look at the necessity of forgiveness, the hindrance of forgiveness, and the mystery of forgiveness. So first, let's look at the necessity of forgiveness. Look at verses 1 through 2 with me again. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, the very first thing we should notice here... Um, is if you remember from our study of Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 32 and Psalm 1 begin very similarly. Because if you recall, Psalm 1 starts out by saying, Blessed, and remember that word blessed means happy, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day day. And night. That's how Psalm 1 starts out. And here's what it's telling us. It's telling us that the happy person is both perfectly sinless and perfectly righteous. But then if you look at Psalm 32, it starts out by telling us that the blessed or happy person is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So both of these Psalms begin in a similar way. Blessed is the man, or blessed is the one. And they both have a similar topic, which is happiness. But what they tell us is very different. Because one is telling us that we'll be happy if we're perfect, and the other is telling us that we'll be happy if we're forgiven. And so what these two Psalms are telling us collectively, when they bring them together, is that even though we're called by God to be perfectly sinless, And perfectly righteous, David knows full well that we're not. Because think about it. You don't need forgiveness if you're perfect, do you? No, you only need forgiveness if you're a sinner. You only need forgiveness if you're a sinner. And so what David is telling us is that forgiveness is necessary for everyone in order for them to be happy because everyone is a sinner. But I don't want you to just take my word for that. I want to actually show you from the text how clearly David makes this point. Because if you look again at verses 1 and 2, what you'll notice is that David uses three different words for sin. Three different terms for sin. And the reason he does that is to show us how revolting sin is and yet how all of us do it. So let's quickly look at each one of these three terms. First of all, In verse 1, he calls sin transgression, transgression. And what this word is showing us is how heinous our sin is in relations to God, God's person. Because what what it means that our sin is a transgression is that when we disobey God, we are rebelling against him. We are rebelling against him as a person. And it's important that we see that because this is what makes sin so terrible. Sin is ultimately a personal attack on God. It's not ultimately an attack on other people, although it does harm other people as well. It's ultimately an attack on the God who has graciously created us and sustained us. And you see, this is why David can say in Psalm 51, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now again, David had sinned against others, but ultimately his sin was against God. And so that's what this word transgression is telling us. Sin is rebellion against God. Now the second word David uses to describe sin is also found in verse 1. And this time he calls sin simply sin. And what this word is telling us is how detestable our sin is in relations to God's law. Because what sin literally means here is intentionally falling short or missing the mark. And so what David is telling us is that we intentionally fall short. We intentionally miss the mark when it comes to obeying God's law as he's revealed it to us in his word. And so if I can give you an illustration of what this looks like, it's like God has given us a a bow and an arrow. And he's told us, see that target down there? I want you to try to hit the bullseye on that target. And so we take the bow and the arrow, but you know what we do instead of aiming at the target? We aim it at God. We try to strike God with the arrow intentionally. And so what this word is telling us is that we intentionally miss the mark, maliciously miss the mark in obeying God's law. And therefore, God's law condemns us because we are obligated to obey it, And lastly, in verse 2, David calls sin iniquity. Iniquity. And what this word is telling us is how harmful our sin is in relation to ourselves. And we know that because iniquity literally means corrupt or twisted or crooked. And you see, that's exactly what sin does to us. It takes God's good creation, even ourselves, and it corrupts it and it twists it. And it perverts it. Because when we sin, you see, we both corrupt ourselves and also corrupt God's creation around us. And so, and so you see, by describing sin in these three different ways, David is showing us just how destructive and monstrous and all-encompassing our sin is. It's rebellion against God. It's disregard for God's law. And it perverts us and all creation. And yet all of us still do it. All of us still sin. But I don't want you to miss the main point here. The reason sin is so awful is because it's ultimately rebellion against God. And I want to go back to St. Augustine here for a moment because he really understood this. He understood that the ugliness of sin lies in the fact that it's rebellion Against God, And here's why I say that if you read his book called the confessions, which by the way, I highly commend to all of you It's it's a classic of western literature and of christian literature There's a section in that book where he's reflecting on a sin that he committed as a teenager And it's a sin that seems to pester him even as he's writing about it as an adult and here's the sin you ready for it he stole some pears from a pear tree now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, clearly he must have been neurotic. Some psychologists who read Augustine actually claim that. I mean, why is he still obsessed with such a small sin? Well, here's why. You see, what he realizes now is that the reason he stole the pears was for the sheer delight of rebelling against God. He didn't steal the pears for their beauty or because he was hungry, or even because they tasted good, he simply stole them because he delighted in his rebellion against God. And you see, that's the reality of our sin. It's rebellion against God. And here's the bad news about that. For our rebellion, for our sins, we justly deserve the wrath of God, We deserve for the wrath of God to be poured out upon us for all eternity. And why is that? Because we belong to God. He is the creator and we are the creature. And as his creatures, we owe him our absolute obedience. It is required of us. It is our duty. And yet, we rebel. And so for our rebellion, we deserve eternal punishment under the wrath of Almighty God. And you see, the reason why David is showing us this so clearly and the reason why St. Augustine reflected on his youthful sins is because they knew that if we don't see the ugliness of sin, then we also won't see the beauty of forgiveness. Because if all you ever do is downplay sin and say, oh, it's not that big of a deal, then forgiveness means nothing. In other words, If sin isn't a big deal, then neither is forgiveness. If sin isn't costly, then forgiveness is cheap. But you see, the reality is that sin is costly. And as a result, so is forgiveness. But here's what I hope is abundantly clear to you. We all sin, every single one of us. And so that's why forgiveness is necessary. Forgiveness is necessary because we are all sinners. We have all rebelled against God. But it's not enough for us to simply see the necessity of forgiveness. We also need to know about the hindrance of forgiveness. The hindrance of forgiveness. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me again. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, in these verses, something very interesting is happening. And here's what it is. David is sharing with us his own experience of a time when he had sinned against God, but he wouldn't confess it. And so here's what happened. Because he kept silent, because he wouldn't confess his sin, God disciplined him physically. David says, my bones felt like they were wasting away. And I had this deep aching in my body. And as a result, all day long, I would groan. I was constantly groaning. And why was this happening? Verse 4 says, Because the hand of the Lord was heavy upon me. Day and night it weighed on me. So David felt way down. He felt a, a heaviness. And he was restless because the Lord was disciplining him. And because of that, he says, My strength is dried up as by the heat of of summer. And we should all know what this feels like because of the time of year that it is. You ever worked outside recently in the last couple days? All day long in the, the hot summer sun? You ever done that? Well, how do you feel afterwards? You feel exhausted, right? You just feel completely drained. And all you want to do is go drink some cold water in the AC and just lay down and take a nap. Cause you're just shot. Well, you see, that's exactly how David feels under the heavy hand of the Lord as he refuses to repent. But here's a question we need to ask. Why doesn't David just repent? I mean, this experience sounds terrible, doesn't it? I wouldn't want to experience it. So what's holding him back? What's motivating him to not confess his sin? Well, the answer to that is quite simple. You see, David was trying to hide his sin from God. He was trying to cover the shame and guilt of his sin before God. But you see, it was a fool's errand. And friends, hear me out on this. It's always a fool's errand. I mean, if we go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, it shows us from the very beginning that trying to hide our sins Is a fool's errand and here's why because in the beginning When god created adam and eve he created them good And just and holy and so they had absolutely no reason To hide from god as a matter of fact They felt so free and open before the lord and each other that they didn't even think twice about the fact that they were running around Naked completely naked In the garden of eden and why didn't they think twice about it? Because they knew they were created in God's image. They knew they were beautiful, and they had nothing to hide. And so they rejoiced in being completely known and seen by God, and they held nothing back. But you see, things didn't stay that way. And the reason they didn't stay that way is because Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God. They rebelled against God. And once they'd sinned, you know what the very first thing is that they noticed? they noticed that they were naked they noticed that they were completely vulnerable but why should that matter i mean they'd been naked this entire time leading up to now why does it matter now that they're naked we see nakedness doesn't bother you if you've got nothing to hide but when you do have something to hide nakedness is unbearable if you know you're unacceptable if you know you have guilt and shame then exposure is the most painful thing in the world. So what do Adam and Eve do? Well, in perhaps one of the most devastating scenes in all of Scripture, they ran to the bushes to hide from God. And they took fig leaves and and tried to cover their nakedness from God and from each other. And you see, what David's trying to do here in Psalm 32 is exactly What Adam and Eve did back in Genesis chapter 3. They're both trying to hide from God. They're both trying to cover their own guilt. But you see, they can't. They're not able to hide from God. They're not able to cover their own sins. So you see, it's a fool's errand. But you know what, friends? We try to do the exact same thing, don't we? Because we all know that we have sin. We all know that we have guilt and shame. And yet we still try to hide it from God. We all—we still try to cover it ourselves. But I wonder, can you see that in your own life? Can you see your own vain attempts at covering the shame of your sin? Because I guarantee you it's there. That's why so many of us work ourselves to death at our jobs. Because we're trying to use it as a covering. And that's why so many of us run ourselves ragged, moms and dads, trying to have the perfect family with the perfect kids that eat the perfect food and that have the the perfect schedule because we're trying to use it as a covering. And that's why so many of us constantly guilt ourselves with bad feelings. This is me, just so you know. We tell ourselves, I know I've sinned, but if I can just show God how bad I feel, Then he'll know that really, deep down, I'm a good person. You see, you're trying to use it as a covering. And that's why so many of us gossip about one another. That's why we try to expose one another through slander. Because we're trying to use it as a covering. And you see, that's why so many of us are drinking and shopping and eating and entertaining ourselves numb because we're trying to use it all as a covering. And do you know why? Because we all know deep down that something is desperately wrong with us. And so we try to cover it. We try to to hide it from ourselves and from each other and from God. But the reality is, friends, that we can't. We can't. Okay, so then what do we do? Well, for starters, we confess. We acknowledge before God that our sin is ultimately rebellion against God. That's what makes our sin so sinful. So tell him that. Say the same thing about your sin that God does in his word. Confess it. That's what David tells us to do here. But I want to point out one more thing before we leave David's experience, did you notice that he doesn't tell us specifically what sin he needed to confess? Did you notice that? And do you know why David doesn't tell us? David intentionally doesn't tell us so that we can make Psalm 32 our own song. In other words, David's telling us, listen, whatever your sin is, whatever sin you have committed, confess it to the Lord. Because if you try to cover up your guilt, it will eat you alive. It will sap your strength and you won't be free until you confess it to God. So do it. Make this song your song. Uncover your sin and confess. That's what David's telling us to do. So we've seen the necessity of sin. We've seen that the necessity of forgiveness is our sin that the hindrance of forgiveness is that we cover our sin. And so now let's look at our last point, the mystery of forgiveness, the mystery of forgiveness. Look at verses seven through 11 with me again. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, the only reason that the mystery of forgiveness even exists is because of what David says in verses 1 and verse 5. And let me show you what I mean. If you look at verse 5, David says that he was forgiven once he did not cover his iniquity. So in other words, once he uncovered his sin through confession, he was forgiven. But then if you look back at verse 1, David said that blessed is the one whose sin is covered. So you see the dilemma here, right? How is David finding forgiveness in both the uncovering of his sin in verse 5 and the covering of his sin in verse 1? How do these two things go together? Because it seems like a bit of a mystery. So how do we solve it? Well, here's how. You see, in verse 5, When David says that he did not cover his iniquity, what he's talking about is how he stopped trying to cover his sin on his own. In other words, he stopped trying to hide his sin from God. Instead, he uncovered his sin. And he acknowledged that God could see it. And he acknowledged that his sin was rebellion against God. And what David is saying is that once he'd done that, Once he'd uncovered his sin before God, God then covered it. That's what verse 1 is talking about. See, the key to solving the mystery of forgiveness is to understand that once you uncover your sin to God, he then steps in and covers it for you. And do you know why that is? Do you know why it is that only God can deal with the mess That is your and my sin because only god has the resources To deal with it. You don't I don't We can't cover our own sin because we don't have the resources to cover them But god does and david makes this abundantly clear for us. Let me show you how Do you remember how we saw back in verses one and two that david uses three words To describe sin. Do you remember that? Well, there's something else that I didn't point out to you. And here it is. David also uses three words in verses 1 and 2 to show us how God deals with our sin. And those three words are three verbs. So let's look at each one of these quickly. First of all, in verse 1, David says that because of, our, of God, our sins are forgiven. And literally what that means is that our sins have been carried away. God has removed our guilt and our shame and our sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So they're gone. They're gone. Why? Because they've been carried away by God and forgiven. And secondly... In verse 1, David says that because of God, our sins are covered. In other words, God has graciously atoned for our sins. He's paid for our sins and we are now reconciled to God. And so God promises that he will no longer bring up our sins as a reason to be displeased with us. Why? Because he's covered them. He has covered our sins. And lastly... In verse 2, David says that God does not count our sins against us. In other words, it's like we've taken a test and, and we've failed it miserably. we got a big fat F on the test. But what God has said in his mercy is that he won't count that test towards our final grade. Why? Because he doesn't count our sins against us anymore. And so what these three words show us is how God has overcome the totality of our sin through forgiveness. Because you see, the three words that show us God's grace are greater than the three words that show us our sin and our shame and our guilt. That's what David wants us to see. But I want to be careful. I want to be careful here because I don't want you to misunderstand What David's saying here. It's not just that God has wiped our slate clean. He hasn't just forgiven us our sins. He's also given us his righteousness. And how do I know that? Because of what Paul says in Romans chapter four. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you verses six through eight. Romans chapter four, verses six through eight. Paul is quoting directly from Psalm 32, and here's what he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom, now listen to this, God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin and so here's what paul is telling us he's telling us that david in psalm 32 says that god doesn't just forgive us our sins but he also counts us as righteous And you see why that's important, right? Because if we're only forgiven our sins, then we still have to work for our own righteousness. Because God doesn't just demand that we be perfectly sinless. He also demands that we be perfectly righteous. And so we can't just have one or the other. We have to have both. They have to be a package deal. And so what Paul is telling us here is that David's talking about both. Not just one. David's talking about being both forgiven our sins and being given God's righteousness apart from any works of our own. So let me ask you, does that solve our mystery? Well, partly, but not entirely. And here's why. We still have to ask the question, how can God do this? Or maybe a better way to ask the question is, how can God be just and still do this? I mean, how can he cover the sins of the guilty without punishing him? That's not justice. And how can he give us righteousness that we haven't earned for ourselves? That's not justice either. So how is it that God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? How can that be? We see the only way this can work is if God sends us a substitute. Someone to stand In our place. And you see, that's exactly what David was looking forward to. And do you know how we know that? Because if you look at verse 7 of Psalm 32, David says, You, speaking to God, you are my hiding place. And do you know who that hiding place is? It's Jesus. Jesus is our hiding place. And you see, that's why the old hymn says, Rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure cleanse me from its guilt and power not the labors of my hands Can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know. Could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So you see, Jesus is the substitute in whom we hide ourselves. Because all God's wrath was spent on Jesus in our place. And that's why God is still just, even in covering our sins. Because he doesn't just ignore them. He doesn't just sweep them under the rug. He deals with them. How does he deal with them? He has Jesus pay for them in full on the cross. That's why our sins aren't counted against us, because they were already counted to Jesus on the cross. They were imputed to his count in our place, and then he paid the debt in full. And so that's why God can justly impute righteousness to us, because it's the actual righteousness that Jesus has earned in our place. So you see Jesus was the covering. Jesus was the hiding place. Jesus was the substitute that David was looking forward to. And that's why the apostle Paul can say of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5:21, "For our sake God made him that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin." So that in him, that is Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news that gives us the freedom to uncover our sins and then hide in Jesus. And do you know what happens, Christian, when you realize all this? Repentance isn't a scary thing anymore. I know that for some of us here this morning, we dread having to repent. It's like our worst nightmare. We avoid it like the plague. And why do we dread it? Because we tend to see the Christian life as nothing more than good behavior. And so that's the air we breathe, just striving for good behavior. And so whenever we have to repent, it's like we stop breathing. And we don't know what to do with ourselves. And so we panic because we've been confronted with the truth of who we really are. But you see, when you understand the gospel, repentance is... The air that you breathe. It's the most natural thing in the world when you know the gospel. Why? Because you know you're not accepted based on your goodness, but based on the goodness of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And repentance reminds you of that. In other words, when you hide yourself in Jesus, repentance leads you to joy. Why? Because repentance leads you back to Jesus, the very source of our joy. But let me ask you, Christian, in closing, do you know this joy? Do you know it? Have you tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord in this kind of repentance, and this kind of joy? Because repentance doesn't end in sorrow. It ends in joy. And so if you haven't experienced that, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask God to give it to you. I want you to ask God to show it to you. Because he's more than happy to give that to his children. But first, you've got to uncover that sin. And then hide yourself in Jesus. So don't delay. Do it right this moment. I implore you. Make Psalm 32 your song. Because it's only the forgiven who can truly know happiness. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, when we repent, it can now be a joy for us. We acknowledge that that we all have sin. Not one of us stands here this morning who hasn't rebelled against you. And so forgiveness is necessary for every single one of us. And yet, Father, we also admit that many of us, if not most of us here this morning, are hiding from you. We're trying to cover our sin with our own righteousness. We're trying to distract ourselves or we're trying to numb ourselves from the guilt and shame that is ever before us. And so, Father, I pray for every single one of us here this morning that you would break us of that, that we would repent, that we would run to you and hide ourselves in you and in your son, knowing that he was broken on the cross for our guilt, knowing that he has earned all the righteousness that we need to be accepted before you. And he's now given that to us. It's been imputed to us. So we acknowledge together, Jesus, that you are our hiding place. You are our security. You are our covering. You are our coat of many colors that covers our nakedness and our shame. And so because of that, may we live lives marked by repentance, where we frequently and quickly acknowledge our sin against you first and foremost, and also against others, so that we can then experience the joy of reconciliation with you through your Son. We love you, and we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our salvation. Amen.